My grandfather came back from the First World War and sank into alcoholism. He could afford it, at least at first. By the end, although he was living in a nursing home, he still retained a chauffeur and went on a daily pub crawl through South Dublin. I imagine the thoughts that lurked at the bottom of the glass. An Irish officer foresees his death in the pubs of Dorky. Max is barking again. I don't know what that dog finds so terribly threatening. He knows how to open the French windows and let himself in. Why did I ever think it appropriate or necessary to have a dog? What do you do with dogs? Well, yes, you can talk to them. You can imagine they understand and sympathise with your inner musings. But that requires, I suppose, some belief that your dog has a semblance of intelligence, or at least a passive acceptance that passes for wisdom. But when I look at Max, the poor creature is devoid of any anthropomorphic charm. He is a canine imbecile, alas, a mutt with the habits of a mutt. There is no philosophy lurking in the dark cave of his mind, only predictable and tedious instincts. For food, inevitably, and reasonably, we are all animals. But we don't all slobber incessantly. We don't all bark at the slightest provocation. We don't all torment our owners to be let out, only to let ourselves back in two minutes later. Max's repertoire of behaviours is limited and dwindling. I seethe with impatience. I look at Max, and I am irritated. Then he pads over and looks back at me, his tongue lolling, his jowls dripping attractively with saliva, and while my heart doesn't exactly melt, I rebuke myself. I understand, you see, that Max and I are equally ridiculous and equally redundant. We are both clinging on to our appetites and our enjoyment of the occasional good shit, because that is pretty much all that remains. Mrs. Boyle lurks in the kitchen. She is preparing my supper. Before she brings her horrible assemblage of victuals into my presence, she will hide the salt cellar and persuade herself that she has not left any alcohol within easy reach. She will then flounce off into the night to whatever life she sustains beyond these castle walls on Wednesday evenings. I will prod and poke the food on my plate, which always makes me think of death. A nibble here, a nudge there, and we'll be done. The waste. Still, can't be helped. I will shamble into the kitchen and fetch myself some toast. Cheese, tomato, pickle, it will suffice. I will crash about swearing until I locate the bottle. I will pour a large measure. Too much, as always, is far better than the risk of a little too little. And although it never stops the dreams... It weakens them. I shall stagger to bed and plunge in, many measures deep with inebriation, and yet still, at the base of the skull, horrors ready to trickle up. I have learned to live with them, learned to sleep with them, and the fumes of alcohol dilute they do, they blur and make hazy what memory throws up and cannot discard. My plea in the imaginary court of judgment is that the rest of my life has passed in a careless limbo where I have tried and failed to dampen down the darkness of that war. When you have endured something so viscerally intense, agony, alas, rather than ecstasy, 
then every subsequent experience is inevitably mild, dull, pointless. Those rites of passage, those stages of man, all of them rendered futile by scars on the mind. I have been thinking recently, ruminating anyway, on the possibility that one may transmit or transfer by some process neither I nor all the experts in the world understand the deep pain, the heart-scalding depravity of slaughter from one generation to the next. All very Ibsen-esque, no doubt, but my ghosts are not syphilitic. They are genocidal. It's not memory that you pass on, of course, how could it be, but the effect of memory. This is what I muse upon now. My son, his son, I have inflicted on them the stains of my life, and the reality of my life is concentrated on that war, and on a few months of that war. So long ago, so impossible to subdue. I am the creature of those nightmares, and along with the whiskey, the brandy, and the gin... I also sweat death. The grandiosity of self-contemplation. Yes, but still, they are an odd lot, my heirs. Weak, I think, or weakened. Of course, there is a part of me that feels no responsibility, that is angry and righteous. What would I have become if the call of war had not dragged me, foolish poodle that I was, to the gates of hell? Am I not allowed to mourn for that young fool? It is a pitiful habit to blame the wrongs of the world upon your progenitors. And I do not, for the old man was an admirable chap. I might never have lived up to his standards or his success, even if the voices in my ears, the horrors in my eyes, did not replay over and over. And, to be fair, my son does not harangue me with accusations. And his son? Well, the young will be fat and useless. It is their wont. My suspicion that, though maimed against, I also maim, is then perhaps an hysterical indulgence. I afford myself a ludicrous power when I muse that I have reached out and placed a wound upon their brows. But there is something, I sense it, fragile in their constitutions. And what will I do with this great insight? I will do nothing, say nothing, offer nothing. My usual response to the prick of reality's thorn and any pain will soon be washed away with my first measure of the drink. Wheelwright is on his merry way. I anticipate him. Shall we play with the order of events? Shall we go straight to Dorky and relish all five of its emporia before we crawl slowly along the coast road and then haul ourselves to the by then no longer galloping green? What devilment! Variety is the stale spice of this bare existence. We converse, after a fashion. He will call me sir. I will half-heartedly tell him to drop the formality. He will say, yes, sir, and continue. Every inch of our journey today, and every murmur of verbal exchange with Wheelwright, has happened before. Ah, but it's a gentle repletion, a harmless reprise. McDonough's first, I say. They know me less well in there. It's a horrible pub, of course, Dorky's low-life tavern. The pretty little fishing village squatting by the sea with all its old ladies and retired grandees, its writers and its tax exiles and its charlatans, has also its battered and exhausted, its cutthroats and its layabouts. 
like me. I am a layabout. I drink, and Wheelwright watches me. A paddy, no water. Paddy is the one for McDonough's. I will mix as we slide along, nothing to preserve myself for later. Paddy is honest, dull, but honest. We feel our way to a smoky corner. The window looks out on a yard, no beautiful sights to see in this part of the town. It's quiet today. A few local yokels stagger in for a pint or five. Harp and Guinness is the go, spirits rarer. They vaguely recall my face. I nod and mumble something inaudible, which seems to satisfy. Sometimes Wheelwright has an orange juice, sometimes a water. Obviously, I pay. I'd pay for him to join me in the great distillery of my daily routine and down a few for company, but he always demurs. Takes pride in the job, I suppose, although what pride there can possibly be in chuntering around South Dublin with a sad captain, I don't know. I am a moth-eaten relic. Mind you, so is he, just a sober one with an irritating air of deference. But I mustn't find fault. We tolerate each other as we go. Round again. The decor in here is wonderfully grubby. There is no awareness of how shabby we have become. Look at us all, propped up, sipping the elixir, hoping for the day to disintegrate as softly as possible. No alarms and no surprises, please. The barman is as shook as the rest of us. What has he done with his life to end up here, serving dregs to the dregs? Poor man, let him pass. He means no harm. I stare into space. The conversation is arid, but you can never stop your own thoughts. Off they race, loudly they proclaim. Even the paddy won't silence them. There you have it. I will die by the very means of my delivery from nightmare. But you don't need any clairvoyance for that insight. Life has been a bad business all round. I did not acquit myself well. Disturbing conclusions. Time for a change. I knock back what's left in my glass and nod to Wheelwright. He knows what's next. Eternal return, or in this case, the Queen's. We could walk. It's only a stone's throw from the present establishment, but we won't. We will motor ostentatiously. We are like Noddy and Big Ears. Wheelwright and I, parp, parp, went the little car. Inside the Queen's there is activity. Preparation for some event or other, some ghastly Catholic ceremony, confirmation or christening or extreme unction or what not. Lots of hustling and bustling. Still, they have time to serve us. Another nip in the glass and we lower ourselves into the soft furnishings. Wheelwright has asked for nuts. A grubby bowl is plonked. He munches. It's only mildly irritating. When did the peanut invade the Irish bar? Who knows? Lost in the mist of time. I sit killing brain cells quietly with each sip, but soon my equanimity is disturbed by a hand on the shoulder. I look up into the smiling face of the Reverend Aubrey Lanford, patron saint of Boers. What is he doing here? He can't be connected to the preparations for something Roman, can he? Yes, he can. Spirit of ecumenism, apparently. Friend of the priest, Father Finton O'Dowd. Off duty. Chance to down a few glasses of wine. Wink, wink. Speaking of which, the clubhouse must beckon soon, surely. Golf, for me, is a thing of the past. Lord knows I spent enough time trudging across the fairways of Kalini and Dunleary, 
when I should have been attending to the business, or to my family, or to the needs of the Republic. I would fritter and waste, and practice my swing, which was never any good, and did not improve. I was a good putter, mind, found the angles well, and let the slopes do their work. I preferred slow greens to fast ones, but the chapter is closed, and I can't imagine myself enduring eighteen holes of religious twaddle just to please this befuddled Bible-mangler. He's a decent sod, though, even if he can't string a sentence together and his sermons make you long for paint-drying. He forgives, you see, a very Christian attribute. I have behaved appallingly in his church, though I must confess my memory on the matter is somewhat compromised. I can't help myself all that spiritual guff, all that righteousness. It cries out for ridicule, satire and fury. I have been guilty of offending the parishioners, preening gaggle of half-wits that they are, through my unruly behaviour. Drunk as a skunk, I have swaggered and abused. Ladies of a certain sensibility have taken umbrage, but the very reverend has always been willing to forgive, after gentle admonishment. And here he is, hanging around the Queen's. I offer to buy him a drink, but he professes that he's needed somewhere, as if anyone anywhere ever needed the poor soul. I wish him well. I am all charm and insight today. We don't mention the past. We don't mention the war. We don't mention anything that might ripple the waters of our complacency. That is the Church of Ireland, a monument to willful ignoring. The troubles of the world... What's that to a meeting of the select vestry? Give us cake stalls and choir practice, and we can turn our faces from the suffering of humanity. Off he toddles. Does he know how useless his profession is? Does he hear the melancholy, long-withdrawing roar? Shouldn't think so. Theology is not really the strong point of Church of Ireland ministers. They prefer gardening and cucumber sandwiches. It's getting a little rowdy in here. Wheelwright peers into the bowl, but all the peanuts are gobbled. Tables are being moved, barrels are being rolled, decorations are going up, we'd best move along. The club is calling us. The club is a large public house at the other end of Dorky. Dorky itself is not very large, however, and it takes us but a jiffy to plant ourselves in a corner of the smoky dark interior to pour another quarter of a gill into my smoky dark interior. We paid little heed on our journey from the Queen's to the pageant of shops, to the old castle on the high street, to the gaudy new supermarket. We're nestled here in the club, just round the corner from Yvonne Jones the baker, and from the girls' school, Loretto Dorky, which has the loveliest setting of any school ever, looking out, as it does, on the rocky shoreline, with Dorky Island lurking to the south-east and Bullock to the north-east. A school of harbours, in a village that still surprises with its elegance, despite all the shysters, charlatans and cockroaches scuttling around its laneways. Dare I take a moment, just briefly, to feel good about the environs? That's Jack Champion at the bar, talking with Donald Googe. Jack is a racehorse owner. God knows how he got the money. And Donald is an English writer of bad semi-pornographic novels who lives in Ireland to take advantage of our generous tax laws as applied to so-called artists. These are the successful men of modern Ireland. Mammon be praised. I'm sure they're kind to small children and pets. I raise my glass to them in mockery, of course, but they just know me by my powerful reputation as an alcoholic has-been. 
There's a glow inside me now. I feel nothing but good fellowship towards my peers. Here we are, guzzling drink, while the hard-working people of Ireland are breaking their backs. Hard-working. There's a thought. So many of the people with whom I've been associated haven't done a tap for the entirety of their existence. At least the Reverend A. Lanford is out there mingling. I also have a clergyman as a relative, a cousin, who bestrides his parish down the country like a colossus, a colossus of vituperative pomposity, with downtrodden blue-rinsed wife in tow. He sneers and patronises from his pulpit of Protestant spite at all the shattered hearts and spirits that gather in the church. What happened to my warm glow? Hath not my cousin eyes, senses, affections, passions? Well, probably not, to tell you the truth. He's a prick, and whether he bleeds or not, nobody cares. The people in my life, must I have so low an opinion of them? Do they suspect anything? Or are we just mutually disdainful? Hypocrisy is just another habit I wear to keep out the cold. The cousin and his wife have never harmed me personally. Oh, they have harangued, of course, mostly about the dividend. Never was Vicar so concerned about share value. I used to write down all these thoughts, just to get them out of the way so they didn't corrode my vision too badly. I had a diary in which all was recorded. And then, well, I don't know, I suppose I must have mislaid it. Perhaps I thought it might amount to something. Perhaps I once had literary pretensions to go with all my other pretensions, fakeries and affectations. I have never been good with any of my talents, assuming, that is, for a minute's indulgence, that I have ever had any. The piano, oh, the sweet piano, where I tinkled away at the grates and ended up preferring seaside shanties. This day is becoming a most oppressive set of reflections upon my failings. Are we done with the club? We are moving too quickly through space and not quickly enough through time. If we give the Sorrento a miss, for there are far too many self-important people a-lounging there all day, and we bypass the arches to avoid its unspeakable vulgarity, we may fling ourselves on the mercy of Fitzgerald's. We shall flee, Dorky. It's all too neat and tidy, all too complacent with hanging flower-boxes and soft-whispered hatreds. Good morning. How are you? You're looking well. You deserve to die in flames for all your sins. And as for me, well, I can't face the truth of myself. That's why I smile so poisonously. My honey Christian blessings on you all. Friends, there is no such duplicity in honest glass through. To Fitzy's we shall go. Come on there, wheelwright. Let's withdraw to the motor. And we putt-putt our way back along the high street and round the square about and the coast road into Glasthoo, where refugees from the torturous sanctimony of Dorky cling to their pints and shots at Fitzgerald's public house. We can relax there, wheelwright, and mix benevolence with the alcohol. We shall become better people in Glasthoo. We may even drive on after down to Sandy Cove and watch the bairns splashing in the shallows, should it be summer, should the day be fresh and warm. I must admit that I cannot quite recall what season it does in fact happen to be. No matter. If a winter's chill has set in and the waters are raging, we can nudge the car up past Scott's white novelty and peer down on the forty-foot, where scrawny naked men can be found dripping at any time of year. Oh yes, we are making progress now. 
Of course, even in the soft sandy cove sunlight, and even after Wheelwright has persuaded me on from Fitzgerald's to the really nothing-going-for-it-at-all Eagle House, but one or two bends on, even then I still see in the murky depths of the forty-foot the floating bodies, the shattered skulls, the brother beside me in the water, the red smoke spreading so beautiful at first until you understand with a shock that this is blood, life-blood, dissolving in futility. And once again all is violence, and violence is all. And the wild shouts of little children are the screams of dying men, and the pebbles they throw into the sea are shells exploding all around me. And there is one way out, only one way out, despite the skinful I've already had. Press on, Captain. Press on to oblivion, shot after shot, to the bottom of the bottle, the bottom of the barrel. What's that? Down there, it is your good self. You are the scrapings. You are the lees of the vault. And there is no more bragging. Thank you.